0: Welcome to the Kohani podcast from me, Isaac Mwema. This is where we build each other up in the faith so that we can be a holy and priestly people. This means that we strive for and are changed by God's presence while also influencing others to be changed by that same presence. Merry Christmas to you all and welcome to another segment of our podcast series on repurposing christmas to glorify christ last time we touched on some of the origins and the misconceptions of christmas and we can be rest assured that when we celebrate christmas there's nothing wrong we are doing there's nothing sinful we are doing but that even so today we will tackle some of the things that we need to edit out of christmas so that it can fully glorify jesus so that it can fully turn the attention to christ as it is Intended to do, so we're going to pray, and then we begin. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us Your Son and leaving Your Spirit, so that O oh God we can find our way unto You, so that Your work on earth can be done, and the Lord, till we see Your kingdom here. Lord, we will continue praying. We continue seeking. Continue trusting, continue in faith, in church. The Lord, we trust that he will help us, even through our inconsistencies, even through our fallenness. The Lord, until we see the glorified Christ coming upon the mountains of Zion, redeeming his church and Israel, his nation, the Lord, we will still keep going on. We won't stop until, O God, we see the fullness of your glory. Father, we pray that through this podcast, you'll reach out to many, that your work will continually be done. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. We will talk historically again um, about Christmas and how it became popularized in the modern world. Because the challenge with Christmas is its modernization, not in its origins. And we are going to see why. We'll start with Christmas in England, being that England um, received the residues of Christmas cultures from all around Europe, and eventually they colonized the U.S. and they brought those cultures there, and then the U.S. modernized it, and what many countries today have as Christmas came from the U.S., so... You understand the logic as to why we will tackle Christmas in England and then Christmas in America, and then from there we can discuss some of the uh errors that we need to blot out of Christmas so that it can fully glorify Jesus. So we begin with Christmas in England in that uh the Christmas in England was not originally very Christian. it was initially called Christ's Mass, yes because of the saturation of Catholicism and that the post-Reformation church found this to be overtly Catholic and it didn't sit well with them. So that is why, as we discussed in the previous podcast, they had to do away with various things, including Santa Claus, who is Saint Nicholas, as they didn't believe in sainthood, you know, uh, amongst various other things even having to transfer some of the dates that were practiced in the Catholics' uh, whole Christmas calendar, which started way before, uh, you know, with the periods of Advent and all that, and bringing them closer to December 25th, because they wanted the focus to be on Jesus. So what happened in England was that Christmas was mixed with some elements of Saturnalia celebrations from Rome. If you're listening to this for the first time and you didn't listen to our previous podcast, you might be lost. So I advise that you go back. You can go back to Origins and Misconceptions, the previous podcast, so that we can follow along. I know when you hear things like Saturnalia, I don't want you to start Googling uh, all over the place, you know, while listening to this. But that it would be helpful to go back to get the context and then... So what happened is... Various aspects of Saturnalia were adopted to the Christmas celebrations in England. For example, the role reversals. I told you you should remember it because this is where we'll tackle it. So, role reversal was practiced, and that in this case in England, it evolved to be such that employees took the place of their bosses momentarily. And even in the church, we had the acolytes who are layman assistants to the deacons, to the diaconate, they would reverse the roles with the bishop. So we can only imagine how that would look like. But that this was still a 12-day Christmas as the Catholics would practice it. And they called it Christmas Tide. So this was from December 24th up to January 5th, very long duration of Christmas. And that, in fact, this is where the 12th day of Christmas song comes from. So they adopted the role reversals directly from Saturnalia, like it was just a direct infusion of it, you know, not caring about it, its implications so much and whatnot as they would with other practices. But this seems to be one thing that sneaked, especially in England, Catholic celebrations, that might have brought a lot of pollution of Christmas celebrations. They also celeb, uh, they also celebrated. Uh, The king of the bin, what was called the king of the bin, whereby a bin or a pea would be hidden inside a twelfth night cake. So in the twelfth night of Christmas, they would prepare a cake and leave inside a bin or a pea uh, in the celebration of the twelfth day of Christmas. The reason why the pea would be hidden inside the cake was so that peasants would find it and that the peasant who found it in the slice of cake that they were eating, were crowned to be the king of the bin as a master of ceremony. So this was, uh, at that time, a modern adaptation of the royal reversal from Saturnalia. So this person would be crowned king of the bin. And, you know, in our modern culture, kingship, royalty, queenship, the monarchy does not mean much to us, but to England at that time, that meant a lot. You know, someone who would be the king of the bin would have some level of authority during that evening. In fact, they would be sort of like a master of ceremony for the rest of that evening, you know, to demand and to ask certain things. And yet, that was a peasant. That was someone that previously didn't have a voice. And therefore, in the table of where masters are, their masters, their employers are, they could have a say. So they would receive honor, even from their masters, for the rest of the evening. And of course, these went out of control. Um, but that we cannot—that this is obviously an idea that was stole from Saturnalia's, uh, Lord of Misrule. In Saturnalia, the Ro—the Romans had what they call the Lord of Misrule, which um, is sort of this same idea as the King of the Bin, but that this is more of an modern adaptation to it you know, in the Lord of Misrule, they would allow lower class people in Rome to take the reins of power and anything that they commanded, commanded, you know, would be followed, even if it was immoral or degrading. So in the Roman culture, of course, we say that there are certain alias celebrations and so in victors were very immoral. And therefore, you'd get a lower class person being given the authority, maybe of their governing that in that uh, house, in the winter celebrations, and that they would demand things that are particularly awful, uh, and we we don't even want to talk about that. So in England, back in England, uh, peasants began misusing this king of the bin, this role reversal thing. You know, they would knock on the doors of the wealthy and refuse to leave until they are given some material possessions that they demanded, you know they even threatened violence if the wealthy people refused to give them what they wanted, and so in the "We Wish You a Merry Christmas" song, I don't know if many of us know the lyrics, but you can Google it. You can see that there there are two lines that hint at this excessive abuse of the role reversal uh, practice, where it says, "Oh, bring us some fudge, po- some Fiji pudding. Sorry, oh, bring us some Fiji pudding." And then there's another one that says, we won't go until we get some. So you can see the demand, bring some Fiji pudding for us and we won't go until you give us some. So it indicates the demand that they would give, you know, when they come to a wealthy man's house. We are not leaving until you give us what we want. So this Christmas in England was quite wild. There was partying, and it included feasting and drinking and partying in the street, which, you know, welcomed a lot of immoral acts and indecency. This carnival-like Christmas went on, you know, until the late 1800s in Old England, and this was a period after the death of Queen Elizabeth in 1603, where Christmas turned into a frenzy. Drunkenness in the New Year's Eve was common patting in the streets, costume wearing, going door to door to ask for handouts, you know, almost like what is being done in Halloween celebrations. Christmas then was not a holiday, but simply an excuse for bad behaviour. But this changed after the English Civil War, where the church was heavily against these practices. A Puritan-led government was a residue of the war, And the monarchy had reduced roles until their roles were reinstated later on, but that at this period after the English Civil War, the monarchy had reduced roles and it was the Puritan government that was preeminent and they banned Christmas in 1647 during the tenure of Oliver Cromwell. So this was not just because of the immorality that Christmas brought, but the connections to Catholicism in its inception, which... The Puritans one of the fan of an excerpt from the public notice that was issued for the announcement of the ban of Christmas is quote, the observation of Christmas having been deemed sacrilege, meaning blasphemous, the exchanging of gifts and greetings, dressing in fine clothes, feasting and similar satanical practices are hereby forbidden with the offender liable to a fine of five showings. End of quote. So you can see how the Puritan government was quite um, legalistic about Christmas, and they would not allow anything that would look Catholic, you know, to appear within culture. And they even ended up burning Christmas. So if this is the way that you want to treat Christmas, which is what I found some Christmas some Christians doing. Sorry. Uh, you just know that you're not the first one to do it. Some people have ended up on this road and it ended up being rather harmful than useful. So the Puritan-led government was quite legalistic, making even the making of Christmas pudding to be a crime. So you can imagine they even restricted making Christmas pudding. Of course, uh, people find ways to do things they want to do. And so eventually the English people found loopholes in the law and they imported Pudding from France. And so the government even banned the very eating of pudding. So we can see this excessive, forceful, coercive, you know, limitation of Christmas by whichever means. Five years later, Cromwell dies and the monarchy returns and they reinstated Christmas. We're going to move on to Christmas in early America and then we are going to see how some of these elements they dropped into the modernism of christmas as we know it so most of the american people and by the way i know that my podcast the number one uh populace of people who listen to this podcast are americans and therefore you can uh forgive me here and there if there's one or two details that uh i may not exactly nail it but that uh you could also help us to fact check and able to just follow along with us we're not telling you what your history is about but that you can just help us to go through this because especially where i'm coming from many people are starting to have a lot of questions about christmas and we have to deal with it theologically even with history so that people can judge correctly and avoid panicking and things like that so kindly join along so most of the american people that Uh, came from Europe during the largest immigration in the 1800s so in the 1800s there was one of the largest European migration to the U.S. and Christmas was not always a major holiday in the U.S. before that a majority of the immigrants that came in the Mayflower were those with Puritan ideologies so that's where the two stories connect The Mayflower is the name of the cargo ship that brought the Puritan separatists who were known as uh, pilgrims to North America in 1620. So they established the first permanent New England colony, you know, and this was in the 17th and 18th century. So we've established how the Puritans felt about Christmas. And so therefore you can understand that if they were to build colonies in the US, how the treatment of Christmas would be you know, and, and that is exactly what was done in the colonies of New England, you know, um, like Massachusetts and various others. They didn't have any recogni- recognition or observant, observance of Christmas tra- traditions. Puritans were not the most leisurely people, in fact. Most of the European calendars, you know, around Europe uh, over the past two millennia, have had an average of two hundred and forty working days in a year, so therefore means that um two hundred and forty you know minus the three hundred and sixty five days in a year you're left with one twenty five so most of the European countries have one hundred and twenty five weekends and bank holidays that are left and two hundred and forty working days. but the puritan calendar is different instead of two hundred and forty working days they had wait for it, 300 working days in a year. So therefore that means that (laughs) the people are only left with 65 off days. Do you know what that means? Just for a fact, there are 52 weeks in a year. And therefore that means that 52 times the two days of the weekend, because you're supposed to have two off days in a week. So that 52 times two, Is already 104 weekend days, at the very least, 104 off days. Yet these guys had 65 days off only. So it's no surprise that Christmas could not stand a chance amongst Puritans, you know. And especially uh, with Christmas having the bad reputation of being a day for troublemaking and parting, it had to be restricted. So, the revolutionary war that came later on in the u s started to turn a tide towards these puritan tight uh policies uh when the revolutionary War came, Americans distanced themselves from things that were of the British culture, and that included Christmas so Christmas was even further shoved off, so it It wasn't made fully illegal to celebrate Christmas in the colonies, but that you'd had to have to be accountable, you know, to the society around you as to why you did it. And the American government removed the winter celebration from the calendar and they refused to give off days to workers. In fact, from 1789, the Congress sat in session on Christmas Day till 1856 as a riot of British culture and influence. Even so, in the early eighteen hundreds, there was a cultural revolution, where Americans yearned for more holidays that they could enjoy, you know. And of course, with the maturity of the nation and you know, people starting to have a handle of things independently from the colon uh, from the colonists colonialists sorry, you know, they wanted holidays for themselves that they can you know, sit around family, you know, and have merry and enjoy. So this marked the growing in popularity of Christmas. So it was brought back again, particularly with the large European migration that was happening simultaneously. So between 1870 and 1900, the largest number of immigrants continued to come from Northern and even Western Europe, including Great Britain, Ireland, and Scandinavia. And I know Scandinavia rings some bells, because we talked about it from the previous podcast so these cultural paradigm shifts contributed to theological amendments in the in the puritan church because society around them was evolving and so in the early 1800s the puritan church elders started to call for christmas observance in its churches so the political social and religious spheres were colliding and agreeing to restore Christmas, and even to reinvent it. And this is where the modern version of Christmas was birthed and spread throughout the world. So in the in the 1900s, Christmas changed tone from an adult holiday, as it were in England, to a more family-friendly holiday, you know, celebration that could include children. And it would be a festivity that people would look forward to all year long. And he's heartwarming and joyful. And you know how we feel about Christmas even up to today. It's something we look forward to. Some important figures uh, that are attributed to coining the modern version of Christmas in the US will give two major examples. And this is where perhaps we can start to pick out some of the errors that happened with the modernization of Christmas. The first being a Christmas carol movie in 1843 by Charles Dickens. So the movie recounts the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, who is an elderly miser who is visited by the ghost of his former business partner, Jacob Marley, and the spirits of Christmas, past, present, and yet to come. Already so many things that are wrong with that statement. So after their visits, Scrooge is transformed into a kinder, gentler man. So spirits visit Scrooge scrooge turns into a gentler man and we are going to see that scrooge is a representative of some of the people that were against christmas we'll talk about it later so it's important to note that the dickens movie happened at a time when christmas was not fully infused as a part of the american culture so this was part of the people that shook you know the puritan stand on christmas Holidays, They were the people who were knocking on the door, you know, rioting silently and, and, you know, releasing a movie through the media to challenge some of the Puritan ideologies. You know, most businesses remained opened on the holiday as Puritans would have it. And so Dickens was imagining Christmas. You know, he was not speaking about, you know, Christmas as was as had happened before it was an imagination in his mind as to what he would imagine christmas to be and he helped to form the ideas behind the modern day christmas scrooge of course as we have mentioned is a representative in the movie as many movies would have characters representing something in modern society if they're criticizing something so scrooge is a cri- is a cri- uh, a critic made character if that makes sense or is if it's a word of coined please understand what i'm saying um he was a rep- representative of the old puritan ideologies around christmas and you understand why they would paint him initially as a tough man you know that was not kind and all that and then spirits visit him and then he changes into a kinder of man meaning that he is willing to allow for the workers to have off days, you know, and it's because of that transition where spirits visited him and then all of a sudden he becomes kinder, a kinder man, more generous, and he's more accepting to the idea of Christmas towards the end of the movie. And this movie ended up being published in England, and therefore you understand why it would shape the perspective of Christmas for both U.S. and the U.K., Another character that was crucial towards Christmas is Washington Irving, who was one of the most popular American authors in the 19th century. He created a lot of what we know about Christmas being a family-friendly holiday that we know it to be today. He was a primary factor to the attachment of Santa Claus to the holiday. So he wrote a lot about Santa. Therefore, The Christmas that we know today is so different from even the original English version that pulled it from old Catholic traditions from Europe. And it is rid of, you know, the craziness, the drunkenness and the immorality. Uh, And they wouldn't even be accepted in the Puritan church. So you can understand that shift to the England church that was Puritan and the Puritan government taking it all the way to the U.S., and it going through those shifts of even, you know, being shoved off for a while, and, you know, it coming back, it wouldn't be the same Christmas. And um, that just tells us that whoever says that Christmas is just a modern, you know, conspiracy theory kind of holiday that was introduced to worship Roman gods, they are so far from the truth, and I'd want you to consider the facts here. Lastly, before we conclude, let's look at some of the meanings of the elements of Christmas. First one being Santa Claus, who, in my opinion, is the most controversial aspect of Christmas. Today, we have a modern version of Santa Claus, the fat, white-bearded, red apron-like clothing guy, you know, with elves carrying his chariots through the sky, loaded with gifts, you know, coming through chimneys at night, This is all from the 19th century very modern his origin is from the 4th century a catholic bishop by the name of saint nicholas of myra was a bishop in the turkish town called myra having been born in patera not so far from myra you know he eventually ended up in the higher echelons of roman catholic church in his region and he was a bishop and All these towns can be found in the modern day Turkey. So, Nicholas attended the Council of Nicaea in 325 BC, but he didn't play a major role there. Therefore, his history is quite obscured, you know, apart from being known for his generosity, you know, which led to his sainthood. And actually, five popes in the Roman Catholic Church history were named after Nicholas. His parents, his parents left him a large inheritance, and he therefore decided to use the money to help people in need, as was known for his uh, history, for his nature of generosity. He converted his inheritance to, you know, charity and giving people. One of the most famous stories of, of Nicholas's generosity was that he redeemed a family of a man that had three daughters that needed dowry and at that time dowry was being paid by the lady to the man's family which is quite different from our African traditions in our African traditions it is the man that gives dowry to the lady's family the lady that he wants to marry you know and I believe it was it was so for the Jewish culture you know that the man would give dowry, you know, as a token of appreciation to the family, as a way to even indicate his financial stability. And I know that that does not sit well with many modern cultures and many people would not be able to understand it, but it was a cultural practice in Africa, in Europe at that time. And therefore, this man needed dowry for his daughters, without without which being married, they would end up, you know, in in destitute situations, desperate in situations like slavery and prostitution. So this was quite urgent. And therefore, the first daughter will, uh, miraculously found gold coins after waking up in the morning. This happened again to the second daughter. Later after, he found she found gold coins after waking up in the morning. And the father was like, who is this dropping gold coins, you know, and helping my daughters to pay their dowry in full? And therefore, the father decided to stay awake, you know, nights over and just look who is this, who is this, and then later on, he found that it was Nicholas in the dead of the night, throwing a bag of gold coins through an open window, for his third, uh, for his third daughter's dowry. One version of the story says that Nicholas, to further avoid being discovered, threw the money through a chimney where it fell, where it fell down and it fell on a stocking that was hanging to dry out on a fireplace so some people when he was yet alive would hang stockings in the same manner in front of the fireplace expecting nicholas to give them you know his prayers were also known to lead to miraculous works which contributed to his canonization as saint nicholas so his charity work having been popular, was carried on by many, even after he passed on, you know, to help the poor. And this can be strongly uh, seen in the St. Nicholas Day being marked, you know, as a major Catholic holiday, you know, because Nicholas died on December 6th, so they made it to be St. Nicholas Day, where where on the eve of St. Nicholas Day, that is December 5th, which was the eve of saint nicholas day gifts were exchanged among many people in a way of furthering the kindness that was shown by nicholas in his lifetime so during the feast children would leave shoes outside the house and they would find candy in the morning so when protestantism uh, gained ground in northern europe There was a need to replace Nicholas with a more neutral figure because sainthood and all that stuff just didn't sit well with the Protestants. And hence, and and it doesn't sit well with me, even me today. I don't agree with that part of Catholicism. I think it is quite dangerous and more closer to maybe some of the Roman traditions that they had, you know, and it influenced how they thought about some certain theological uh, teachings so we move on uh so christians the protestants they removed uh the name santa um saint nicholas because at that time it was not yet santa claus it was saint nicholas they uh they they named they named it father Nicol uh father christmas sorry in england in england they named him father christmas in netherlands he was called Sinterklaas, which is what we talked about in the previous podcast this is more of a dutch version of the santa that we know today and eventually he this class was the version that was proposed to americans and they made santa claus out of that name so in germany and in austria the legend of santa changed as luther wanted to change the attention from santa to jesus we talked about martin luther you know, a great reformist in the German uh, uh, Protestant Church, and that he brought a lot of changes to the Roman Catholic version of Christmas, in that he edited it out, as opposed to the other radical Protestants that were like the Puritans, that wanted uh, Christmas to be abolished in the first place, but that him, he brought neutrality to the situation and said, no, we are going to edit out some of the things that we know do not bring attention to Jesus like Santa, and we are going to make it to glorify Jesus as much as possible. And therefore, Luther, you know, removed Santa from there, you know, and he replaced him with Jesus. And he also moved the gift giving on the eve of St. Nicholas Day, you know, from December 5th to the eve of Christmas on 24th. And he renamed the day to be Chris Kindle or Christ Child. We also discussed that in the previous podcast. So when Europeans migrated in one of the largest migrations to the U.S. to date in the 1800s, they brought with them all these legends you can imagine and traditions about Christmas. You know, then eventually they got Americanized. So for example, the English Christmas that we started with became Christmas. The German Christkindl became Chris Kringle. The Dutch Sinterklaas became Santa Claus, you know, particularly popularized by Coca-Cola you know, to boost sales in the holiday season. And this was thought initially, um, Santa was thought initially to be more of a sailor. You know, and he initially, even in his inception in the US, is a very different version of Santa Claus than we know him today. Santa wasn't fully accepted as an idea before, you know, even that uh, Santa wasn't half of what we know him Uh today then, uh, till like 1822, when Clement Clark Moore, so this is in the U.S., Clement Clark Moore wrote one of the most famous American poems, popularizing Santa as we know him today. The poem is called A Visit from St. Nicholas. The poem today is known as The Night Before Christmas. In Moa's story, Santa is an elf who descends through chimneys to give gifts to children. Moa's Santa rode a sleigh, tagged by eight-line reindeers. He gave names to the reindeers, even though some of the names have been changed today. Santa is described in the poems as having rosy cheeks and red nose. He wore fur and he has a white beard he smoked pipe so he had a nicotine addiction and he had a round belly that shook whenever he laughed ho 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 so the modern santa is not uh, addicted to nicotine anymore but that he has an appetite for milk and cookies in 1863 uh, thomas nest was also uh, known to have been one of the people that popularized the idea of santa because he illustrated santa in an american publication called harper's weekly magazine so he reinforced moore's poems idea of santa so he however drew santa into a full-grown man not an elf and then the suit which was initially brown was now red he had a bigger tummy and he was a resident of the north pole and he had a naughty or nice list naughty list being uh he would have a naughty list of the children who did wrong things and a nice list, a, a list to reward the children who did the right things. So in one in one sense, Santa is painted as being omniscient, which is one of the issues with Santa. We continue, however. Nast's uh, Santa was a riot against the ruthless, cold-hearted businessmen of their time, who were called the robber barons, who built their businesses on the premise of robbing the poor workers in their interests in their industries through sketchy business practices and so and so Santa was like the inverse of the robber barons um in that Santa was introduced to be the opposite of that in that he gave to the poor later on however, it is coca-cola that finished the modern version of Santa as we know him today in that uh <clears throat> in nineteen thirty one uh, Coca-Cola be- began boasting winter sales during the Great Depression. So they ran ad campaigns, you know, with the Santa. Santa had black boots and a black belt, you know, as new additions to the illustration by Thomas Nest. So this is a modern Santa, you know, that we have today. Coca-Cola, being a big company, was was using the philanthropic card from Nast's idea of santa to win the market share while reserving their public relations so you can imagine big corporations are being seen as greedy as misusing um um their workers you know like the robber barons and therefore coca-cola during the great depression you know where, where people are very economically sensitive they decided to come with the narrative of santa so that they can boost their sales but still be able to reserve their image by coming as santa so this philanthropy uh, of the wealthy began uh, became quite popular during christmas in the u.s and this happened at the end of the 1900s some people that have associated santa with krampus you know some people have said oh santa had a naughty list and a nice list and who would deal with the children that were in the naughty list and so people started to say that krampus you know, is the person that does the dirty work for Saint Nicholas. And this was mostly an idea that was popularized in the 12th century, that there's this legendary god-like figure called Krampus, and he would punish and kidnap bad children. But this was nothing more than just a fear tactic to get kids to obey during Christmas. In fact, the Catholic Church, you know, was against this twist of Santa many christmas uh, many christians continue to distance themselves from santa in christmas celebrations because he seemingly he seemingly is an omniscient spiritual being you know that knows if you are good or bad so in fact in many christian celebrations today apart from the christmas tree i've rarely seen santa even though i've seen some people you know doing santa hats and things like those but that i've rarely seen santa you know with many christians so as it is even if you want to build correlations with santa you know and krampus and all that stuff many christians don't don't uh celebrate santa as much you know as much as you know maybe the modern churches and stuff like that who still do it to entertain the kids secondly is christmas trees let's look at them briefly We've seen how winter celebrations were a vital part of ancient civilizations and empires, including Rome. But that also we saw in the previous podcast how activities like Yule Log in parts of Europe incorporated florals and light in their winter celebrations. Therefore, the use of greenery and light was a common part of old cultures during winter. And this happened in civilizations that were not in contact with one another. They had no universal agreement as us today to see that this nation does this. Therefore, let's do it. You know, we're talking about Egypt, you know, when it was a superpower long ago. You know, we're talking about all ancient world. We're talking about Chinese, talking about Aztecs. They had winter celebrations. And we established in the previous podcast that it was because of the winter solstice, that whether we like it or not, superstitions would be built around such a huge natural phenomena. You know, days growing virtually shorter, 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 gradually up to the winter solstice, where now the day becomes the shortest and the night is the longest. And then on, after winter solstice, the day gradually becomes longer and, and nights become shorter. Many people would build superstitions around a holiday like that. You know, and, you know, apart from, you know, uh, the various other things, greeneries were part of this celebration, like we said, apart from animal sacrifices and things like those, greeneries were part of these celebrations where they would have evergreen plants, you know, because they they looked unique, you know, in that they survived the harsh winter weather and superstitions were therefore built around them to signify life and new birth and even to celebrate you know, in Saturnalia to celebrate Saturn as the agricultural god. So when the church began observing Christmas in the the 4th century and beyond, the Roman Catholic Church took some of the items used in Saturnalia, which is the Roman midwinter celebration. However, it was in the spirit of replacing, not copying. That's what we said yesterday. They Christianized those elements being envious of how pagan winter holidays were rampant. For example, they placed apples on their trees to remind them of Eden and that the birth of Christ was to bring a restoration into Eden as a new Adam. They used holy to signify the crown of thorns because it was thorny and and the crown of thorns, we know it, it was used in the crucifixion of Christ. you know, And this was to replace the superstitious depiction of life You know uh, from ancient roman practice use of holy you know they simply they simply wanted a godly holiday that would replace the others even so this did not influence you know the greenery that is being used in christmas today Uh, fast forward to the middle ages december 24th was called adam and eve day and in europe they had skits and plays on this day you know, commonly known as paradise place. And Martin Luther, uh having loved these para paradise plays and skits, you know, he used them to set the stage for the revelation of the birth of Christ in the following day on Christmas. And the place were commonly known to have a paradise tree, and people saw that it was a good idea, these paradise trees, you know, and they would now bring the trees indoors. And this paradise tree ended up being what we know as Christmas trees today. The earliest modern version of the Christmas tree can be traced to Latvia in 1510, and then in France a little after that. In 1561, a German-nuanced area in France liked Christmas trees so much that the government had to restrict it to only one tree, a family. So they decorated them with apples, with foils, with nuts, and eventually Christmas trees would be identified to have come from Germany more than any other place in the world because we saw that the Lutherans really popularized it. And for a long time, they were thought to be um, a Lutheran or a Protestant tradition. Whereas Catholics used nativity scenes for Christmas to display the manger stories in art form, Protestants used Christmas trees, which were the paradise trees. In 1800, uh, the Christmas tree was quite popular in England and then to America. In the mid-18th century, King George III married a German lady by the name of Charlotte and she brought the Christmas tree to England with her. Even so, it wasn't popular then. And then came the largest European migration to the US, but still it wasn't popular then for reasons we have already established. And then in 1840, when Queen Victoria married Prince Albert, Uh, Prince Albert brought the Christmas tree from Germany as a honorary exhibition in the Windsor Palace in London. And this popularized the tree over the decade after. And then America followed suit. It was famous, you know, as a Christmas icon in the 19th and 20th century. The New Orleans Exhibition, uh, Exposition, sorry, featured the Christmas tree in 1885. 1923 had the Christmas tree featured at the White House. 1933 had the Christmas tree featured at the Rockefeller Center in New York. The Christmas tree, as of this time, was a staple in American Christmas routines and it served more of a gift repository for families. Last element of Christmas and where it came from, we're going to deal with mistletoe, holly and poinsettias together. So mistletoe is the more is the most pagan of Christmas traditions, uh. If you'd want to consider one that was just directly picked from the pagan world and it's here, it's useless, doesn't have a purpose. One that you can immediately throw out is mistletoe. Um, it held sacred and ancient. It was held as sacred by ancient and and uh, Greek cultures. They, f- um, it was also found in the laurels of the druids and the Norse. Uh, which they used for conflict resolution in that if two disagreeing parties were found under a mistletoe, means the conflict was, gone and, was done and gone, then Christmas celebrations of the church fathers um, later on had the mistletoe. But also we note the mistletoe in the tradition of kissing under the mistletoe that originated from Saturnalia festivals and was practiced in England in the 1700s as we saw the direct picking of some of the saturnalia elements in old england christmas celebrations so in the 1800s under queen victoria it was believed that two people who kissed under the mistletoe would be married so we can just see mythical useless purposeless item from the pagan world do away with it it is outright pagan secondly is holy holy was used in saturnalia as one of the evergreen winter plants that they Venerated as signifying life and associated with the agricultural sun god uh, Satan. Druids used holy in their halls as a good luck charm, and this was later Christianized to signify the crown of thorns by the Roman uh, Catholic Church and the red berries to symbolize the blood of Jesus. So many people today, however, just do it ignorantly, you know, for the sake of doing it, but that holy. You know, it's one of the things that you can utilize in your Christmas decorations to actually bring an image and a picture of Christ in his crucifixion and be able to, you know, even draw the story to adults and children alike. And you can use it as an element, as a Christian symbol, to demonstrate the love and the life of Christ during this season. Poinsettias, lastly. Poinsettias are quite recent and they came from dr joel roberts uh he's called dr joel robert poinsett he was an american ambassador to mexico and he brought the plant back from mexico in 1828 and it it has no clear connection to christmas whatsoever except that the national poinsettia day is december 12th so this is identified with christmas mostly just for aesthetic value it turns red when other plants die and that's it so To finish this podcast, here are some of the questions that we need to seriously ask ourselves. We have looked at much of history, much of facts, much of people, much of years, much of cultures. And we know that Christmas is not pagan at this point. It's not wrong to practice it. But that even so, there are some questions we need to ask ourselves with the modernization of Christmas. In that, what do some of the things in Christmas have to do with jesus given that christmas was christ's mass it was intended to worship and glorify christ from its inception when the church had a revival during the days of constantine this was to battle ancient cultures and to bring about jesus and it worked and it was a powerful holiday that came and swept over Sat- saturnalia and Sol Invictus. and today we no longer celebrate certainly also invict in our culture, but that Christmas has eclipsed it all. It's glory to God. The challenge is, with its modernization today, how many of us can outrightly say, when Christmas ads start to run, you know, when we have Christmas sales and all those things, that Jesus has just been diluted and just swept under the carpet in Christmas, you know, unless we go to church on Christmas Day? The heavy commercialization during christmas know that it is bad know that we are anti-business in fact if not for business maybe some businesses could not survive if not for christmas sorry but that the heavy commercialization that is there during christmas it eclipses it, it it hinders it obscures it it gets the attention away from christ you know after all that you know adverts and all these things and the way Santa is brought to us and whatnot and Black Fridays and all stuff that happens during Christmas, it's easy that we just get into the buying frenzy. It's easy that we go into the old version of Christmas where it's just about buying and parting and doing this and doing that. Do we question ourselves how that can deviate us from Christ? There's a way to do it with balance, with maturity. The parting that is there, we have talked about it. You know, should we just indulge in in gluttony during this season, just in excessive eating, just moving from one household from one relative to another, one neighbor to another, eating as if you are never going to eat before, it deviates attention. The lingual theft that is happening during Christmas is not being over religious. Why the lingual theft in things like Xmas, that re- you replace the whole Christ in Christmas. Whom this season is about why would there be things like that you know we should question some of the things that are happening in the modern version of christmas my biggest contention with christmas i've already decided, is santa claus and i'm going to state the reasons why this is it what does an omniscient an, an omniscient spiritual being have to do with christmas apart from jesus who is this omniscient guy that knows about kids rewards them for doing wrong and right you know, it's scary to consider, and I'm not planting a thought, but it's scary to consider that Santa could even be a wordplay for Saturn. Saturn, Lucius, Santa Claus. You know, Lucius being the root name for Lucifer, you know, who is the bringer of light. And it actually stems from Saturn's origin as a seraphim, an angel of light who was created to worship God in heaven before his fall. You know, Ezekiel 28. 12 to 19 second corinthians 11 and verse 14 you know it's it's scary to consider that thought because even if we don't crunch it down to such a demonic you know appreciate a a demonic uh, origin of of santa then the whole catholic theology that is wrong of sainthood being that it births santa is off you know in that Why is Christmas more about a generous dead spirit? You know, more than it is about Jesus Christ. Because Santa is a reminiscence of a dead man at the very least. And which gifts can dead people give? And worse, we have allowed our children to love Santa. What seeds are we sowing in them during these festivities? in my thumbnail for this episode today I have a Santa who is crawling in the chimney with with, uh, um, with a weapon because this idea of a Santa that gives might well be a Santa that takes something away you can check the thumbnail today, it's a Santa that is crawling in the chimney with an axe and we need to question it Saint Okay, Nicholas, I'm not even calling him a saint. Nicholas was a Catholic bishop in Myra. Bless the Lord. He served his time and that we don't have anything to do with the dead. But that commemorating him to the point that now we bring him during Christmas, it deviates the attention from Christmas. And we don't want to consider some of the implications that this could lead to, like the one that I've talked about. Not that it is a fact, but it could be that... That is the implication of Santa during Christmas. Some of the elements that are infused are wrong and they are to turn our attention from God, from Christ in this season and we need to banish them away. The solution is to edit them out. It's not to abandon Christmas in its entirety. So we have judged fairly. We have looked into the whole conspiracy theory and the fact that Christmas is actually okay and it's not sinful. Nothing in scripture to to defeat it. Its origins are safe and are fine. We have looked at the elements individually, year by year, where they were made. Even the rulers, even the political parties that brought it about the immigrations, the nations. We have looked at them and we have said it is fine. But that we are also saying there are elements to remove. So we have balanced the scales. We finish. The modernization of Christmas dilutes. It deviates. And even obstructs the main aim as to why it was birthed we have made it into a frenzy again as it was in old England and ancient cultures a party to appease ourselves a time to eat and drink as much as we can to make reconnection with people who will be potential business partners because families are coming back home you know and also in our good intentions it's not like we are entirely bad in celebrating Christmas in our good intentions we have made it to be all about family and getting together, you know, in a famous uh time of the year, which is good, but this is it. How many of us would see the opportunity, apart from the Christmas church service, would see the opportunity to talk about Christ in their family settings? People have gathered around. Some people that just during the year get lost, you know, <laughs> you know, those type of fellas, but they just pop their heads during Christmas out of nowhere. We see them in church and at home. And that what an opportune moment to speak about Christ, who is the reason for this season. So that's my urge to you today. Blot out the bonds of Christmas, the, the things that are pagan, the things that we don't know their origins and what they re, they really intended to be. Let the holiday be as it is, but that you can use it to glorify Christ in your family. Sit down with verses about Jesus and his mission on the earth. That he came that he may abolish sin. That he who was righteous was made to be unrighteous. That we could become the righteousness of God. Let the reality and the marvel of the gospel return to our homes again. And it's an opportunity to evangelize to the least, to the last, to the lost in our homes. People who maybe have had church and, and about Christ just by virtue of the family being Christian. But it's an opportunity to really Put it in their hearts that even as we are maturing in age and in life, how are you considering about Christ? As we know about each other, as we see each other developing, as we see kids around, you know, from school and all that stuff, what an opportune moment to speak about Jesus.